Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for another day set aside from our normal activities to come and to receive from you through your word and through your spirit and through the sacraments. We pray now that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. We pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would sanctify to us. We pray that your word would be effectual in our lives, accomplishing all that you've set out for it to accomplish. In Jesus' name and through the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated and turn, if you will, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke will look this morning at what's often called the parable of the persistent widow. And Sinclair Ferguson, when he was writing about this, he said, this is one of the parables that people find most irritating at times. <laughs> but I also hope that we can find it, it's, it's meant to be a little bit comical in some sense. It's a very unique situation. Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the future. He has told them that he is going to die, that he's going to be crucified, and that he's going to rise again, and he's preparing them for what's going to happen immediately, just within the next couple of weeks. But he's also been preparing them in answer to the question about what's going to happen because he's also told them that he's going to go away. And they're just kind of getting used to being around him. <laughs> They've been around him for two or three years now. They're really beginning to trust and really beginning to lean in and really beginning to love and to understand the Savior. And he's saying, it's, I'm going to go away. And there's a, a fear. Uh, what does that mean? What does that look like? And so right before this passage, he had told them about a, a, a delay that he's going to go away and that there will be an interim period. And in the period, he wants them not to lose heart and he wants them to continue to pray. And that's what the parable uh, is about. It's really a contrast parable. Like Sinclair Ferguson said, sometimes when we read the parable, we find, well, that's kind of irritating. What is this really about? Is this really telling me something about the Lord? Is the Lord like this unjust judge? And no, he's not. It's a contrast parable. It's saying he's unlike this judge. Throughout Scripture, often we hear what someone will do who is either evil, and we find out how much more will your heavenly Father do, right? We hear, if an evil parent knows how to give good gifts to their child, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to you? Or if the Lord takes care of the lilies of the field, and the Lord takes care of the birds of the air, how much more will your heavenly Father care for you? This is that how much more kind of parable. If this unjust judge is going to do this, how much more your loving and heavenly father, the just judge, is going to do for you. So he's unlike this. It's a contrast parable. And maybe that will be helpful for us as we dive into the passage. But we'd like to look at three things this morning. First, the setting of the parable. Second, the telling of the parable. And third, the purpose of the parable. So the setting of the parable, the telling of the parable, and the purpose of the parable. So here we read the word of God. In Luke 18, starting in verse 1, it says, And he told them, his disciples, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, the first thing we want to look at this morning is the setting of the parable. Like I mentioned, uh, Jesus had been with the disciples for about three years. And just imagine all the things that they've seen and heard in that time. They've seen miracles manifesting uh, that the kingdom has come. He's shown that he can calm storms. He's fed 5,000 people. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's helped the lame to walk, the blind to see. He's even raised someone from the dead, and he's forgiven sins. Imagine being with Jesus during all of those things and seeing that. And all of those things are signs that the kingdom has come, that the king has come. This is what the Old Testament and the Old Covenant said would happen in that great day when the Messiah comes. And here they've seen it, they've heard it, they've witnessed this. The, the poor have good news preached to them. The blind see, the lame walk. People are raised from the dead. In other words, the king has come, the kingdom is here. Don't miss it, it's near. But also there's been a mounting animosity towards that king, hasn't there? There's been confrontations with Jesus. The Pharisees and Sadducees have tried to trick him. They've tried to trap him. They've blasphemed him. They've accused him of working in the name of Beelzebub. Jesus has just told the disciples about his impending trial and his crucifixion. He's told them that this kingdom doesn't come without conflict as well. There's a massive war going on that's gone on since Genesis. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And now here is the actual seed of the woman. The promised one, all the way from Genesis 3, is now standing here in their midst. And there's hostility mounting and growing. And there's confusion sometimes about this kingdom. Yes, he's done all these wonderful, mighty miracles. But there's still persecution. There's still hatred. There's still division. There's still a war going on. And Jesus had just told them that that war is going to continue even after he is resurrected, even after he ascends. He said, it's good that I go away and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, but that war is going to continue. And he's telling them about the period between the tick of his first coming and the talk of his second coming. What kind of people ought we to be? What ought we to expect? What ought we to be doing? And first and foremost, he wants to say, don't lose heart and continue in prayer is the point of it. But he's getting to that point, right? He says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. It's always helpful when Jesus tells us the point of the parable. (laughs) This is what it's about. It's difficult, isn't it, to be a Christian? It was difficult for the disciples to be Christians. It was difficult to be a Christian in the first century. It's difficult to be a Christian in the 21st century. And so he tells us to pray. You ought always to pray. And that means continually rather than continuously. (laughs) You couldn't pray continuously and still do the other things that the Lord has called you to do. But it means to be continuous in your prayer. In other words, do it again and again. Come to the Lord. Bring your praises, bring your petitions, bring your requests. Peter even tells us, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He doesn't say, shame on you for having anxieties. He says, bring them to me continually, perpetually. Come over and over to the Lord again and again. Pray all the way through to the end. Pray all the way through until the Lord returns. 
You are always to be praying and not to lose heart. It's easy for us to look around and think, this uh, mission of the Lord is not going very well. From our perspective, it may seem like that, but from a heavenly perspective, it's going just according to plan. That's what we've been seeing for those of us who have been going through the book of Revelation in our Sunday school class as well. Everything's unfolding just as the Lord plans. And even the trials and the tribulations and the sufferings of this evil age are meant to sanctify us and purify us, to conform us more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So don't lose heart. The king has come and he's returning. Don't lose heart. Pray. Continue to look to him. It's easy to lose heart, isn't it? And so Jesus is recognizing this. The parable is given because he recognizes it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to be discouraged. I sometimes feel like that balloon out in front of the Jiffy Lube, right? This, yeah, oh, yeah. Just so quickly how my emotions or my life can change just based on whims of my own emotions or things going on in the world one way. It's so easy to lose heart. And so Jesus tells this parable. It's easy for us to lose heart, right? But think about how difficult it is for a widow who's denied justice in the first century. So he tells this parable, the second point. It's very unique to Luke, this parable. As a matter of fact, Luke emphasizes the treatment of widows and their care throughout both of his books in Luke and in Acts as the treatment of widows is a very reflection of the heart of the Lord regarding matters of justice. When widows are mistreated, mistreated, it's a travesty of justice. It's worthy of God's wrath. When we shut our ears to them, when we shut our hearts, when we shut our wallets. It gets me very angry, the modern tendency of people to prey on the elderly. People running scams, trying to deceive those elderly in our community who are duped by this out of hundreds if not thousands of dollars in life savings. That's wicked. That's evil. And the Lord hears that and the Lord hates that. And that's what this is saying, that the Lord has uh, a, a love for the poor and the oppressed and the orphan and the widow and the outcast, and he cares about them deeply. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 22, it says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's reminding them, right? You were once outside, you were oppressed. Now that you are in a position of power, don't be an oppressor. Remember what you were and what you are. He said, you shall not mistreat any widows or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword. And your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. Right? That's a burning passion for the widows, for justice, for righteousness, and for fairness. James in the New Testament puts it this way. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you see, this judge was legally required to give precedence to this widow. As one in the covenant community, as one under his charge, he was supposed to put her first in line, to care for her. A widow in that day who's denied justice has no hope, no help, nothing, no quarter coming 
to be of help to her in any way. And so this judge is doubly problematic. You would not want this judge, would you? The text says he doesn't fear God and he doesn't regard his neighbor. Imagine putting that on the billboard, right? You're the, you're the lawyer. I don't fear God and I don't respect my neighbor. Come to me, right? What an awful judge. You don't want this person to be a judge. And note that it's not just an outside perspective, but the judge's own evaluation is saying, I neither fear God nor respect my neighbor. This is a wicked and evil person who knows what he's doing. He's in essence violating the entire first table of the, uh, of the commandments, the first four. He doesn't fear God, and he doesn't have respect for his neighbor. He's not loving God. He's not loving his neighbor. He's a wicked, evil person. And he's one of the characters in our story, right? The other one is the widow. Someone has it in for her, clearly. She's being hounded, wrongly. And she says that she has an adversary. The adversary is the same word that's used in Scripture uh, for Satan. She has someone hounding her, going after her, trying to do evil to her. God is concerned for the helpless. God is concerned for the defenseless. God is concerned for the resourceless. And she has no advocate. She has no one coming on her behalf, so she keeps going. It's interesting, in our day and age, as Michelle and I have gotten older and we've helped care for those in our family who've gotten older, we realize more and more, you have to advocate for yourself all the time. It'd be really lovely to have someone come alongside who understands all the inner workings of healthcare and all these systems better to come along and be an advocate for us, but most of the time you have to figure it out, and it's frustrating. And here, this woman has to be her own advocate. She just keeps coming. And her request is, give me justice against my adversary. She wants this judge to grant her what is right, what is true, what is just. She's not asking for a handout. She wants someone to defend her cause. She wants someone to come to her aid. And the judge was legally required, as I said, to move the widow's case to the top of the pile. But for whatever reason, he didn't do it, right? Maybe he wanted a bribe. Maybe he wanted someone to grease the wheels of justice a little bit. And we get frustrated. We see that happen in our day, right? Maybe he feared the more powerful adversary. Maybe he knew this other person. And to kind of take the widow's side against that person would be problematic. Maybe he was just lazy. But notice the judge describes himself the same way the Lord did. I don't fear God and I don't fear, I don't respect my neighbor. And so later after, he says, but I will give her justice. But why? Why is he going to do this? He says, because she keeps bothering me. The reason he's going to do the right thing is because he's weary. He's tired. He doesn't want to be bothered. She's causing me distress. She's causing me discomfort. And if we read the text literally, it said so that... Make sure I get it right here. 
that she will not beat me down. You could translate that as that she won't strike me in the face. She won't give me a black eye. Our sense of justice wants to see this old lady just go, And he's saying, look, I'm going to give her justice because she keeps on bothering me. She's causing me distress. She's causing me discomfort. I just don't want to deal with it anymore. And so that she will not beat me down by her continually coming. Literally, it would mean to give him a black eye, but figuratively, it just means to wear him out, to browbeat him, that he would end up with a blackened face. He'd be defamed or disgraced or embarrassed in the society if they really saw, wait, this is how the judge treats a widow? This is what the judge is doing to her? Let's, the press is going to find out about this Twitter or X or formerly known as Twitter, whatever's going to find out about this, and it's going to be all over the place now. And so he'll do it because she's bothering him and because he doesn't want to be embarrassed or defamed in the public. And so note that the judge will do the right thing but for the wrong motives. He's doing it for himself. He acquiesces, ultimately. But not out of a sense of justice. Not out of a sense of fear as one who is also accountable to a judge higher than him. Not as a fellow human. Not as a fellow covenant member. Not out of mercy, but because of how it affects him, because of the consequences to him. And so the woman's efforts, her tenacity, her consistency, her expectancy have met with success. And Jesus is using this as a model for how disciples are to pray between the tick of Christ's first coming and the talk of his coming with tenacity with consistency, with expectancy that you're going to be heard and that justice will come and that the right thing will be done. She's a wonderful woman, isn't she? She's a wonderful model for us. And finally, we want to look at the purpose of the parable. What's the purpose of this? It says here. Here, what the unrighteous judge said. Here is inviting us in, isn't it? It's inviting us as those listening to the stories to reflect on the story and the judge's response. And also we recognize that faith comes how, beloved? By hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. So he uses this story. He's using the parable. He's using his word. Luke is using the gospel. The Holy Spirit's using the gospel to either create faith in your hearts or to nourish faith or to increase faith so that you may understand who the righteous judge is, who the holy one is, who the merciful one is, who our advocate is, as we'll go on to see. Here, that you may live, that you may believe. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And here we have a contrast parable, as I said, a lesser to the greater. God is unlike this judge. God is dissimilar to this judge. He says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So he asks two questions, right? Will God vindicate his people? Will God give them justice? The answer is a resounding yes. Even more certainly than this wicked judge gave justice to this woman, 
how much more will your heavenly Father give justice to you and vindicate you from your enemies, from sin, from Satan, from death? How much more will he vindicate the church from her oppressors and from her adversaries? It's meant to increase faith, to say, look, if this unjust will judge, will do this. How much more, your heavenly Father? How much more, your just and righteous Father? Will he vindicate his people? Yes, absolutely. Bank on it. Will they have to wait a long time? Answer? God is not like the judge who has to be pestered before he gave in to the widow. He will answer soon, it says. Speedily. Speedily can mean soon. It can mean suddenly. It can mean unexpectedly. Isn't it interesting that all of those are ways in which the return of the king is described? He's going to return soon. He's going to return suddenly. And he's going to return unexpectedly. And that's the context for this parable to them. He had just told them that he's going to be crucified, raised, he's going to go away, and there's going to be an interim, and then he's going to come back. He will answer soon. He will answer speedily. Is he going to vindicate his people? Yes. Is he going to do it soon, speedily? Yes. The whole context of it is looking at the return of the king. It's because we have hope. It's because we have a crucified and risen Savior and we have a returning Savior that we have hope that we can pray any of our prayers with any kind of confidence or any kind of hope or any kind of security or any kind of tenacity. More aware that he is willing to hear us and answer us than we even are to pray at times. It says that he's going to do this for the sake of the elect, his chosen ones. It's meant to be a great comfort. Will not God give justice to his elect? To those whom before the foundation of the world he determined to seek and to save and to adopt and to make him his own and to make joint heirs with Jesus? The very ones for whom Jesus came to die? The very ones for whom Jesus rose again? The very one for whom the Holy Spirit was poured out that you too might call on the name of Jesus? Won't he vindicate all of his elect? Won't he do this soon for his people? To the elect, the chosen ones. Matthew said, many are called, but few are chosen. And he goes on to say, if the days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. If God did not intervene to save the elect, all would be lost. In other words, looking at the time between the tick and the talk, if Christ wasn't intervening, if the Father wasn't intervening, and the Holy Spirit, all would be lost. But he is. He's in control of the whole time period. And because of that, not one of his will be lost. Everyone for whom Jesus Christ died will be saved. Every one of his sheep will hear his voice. Every one of them will call out on his name. They are the elect. And so, friends, our relationship with God is the opposite of the relationship of this widow to the unjust judge. She was unknown to the judge. Note that they aren't even named, either one of them. But you're not unknown. You are chosen. You are elect. You are adopted. You are beloved by the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. They know you by name. You've been baptized also into their name. 
the judge was unrighteous, but God is holy and righteous and true. This judge was really selfish, but God is self-giving, isn't he? The Father so loves that he sent. The Son so loves that he came. The Holy Spirit loves, and that love has been poured into our hearts. He's not a selfish or stingy God looking out only for his own interest. He's looking out for our interest, for our best interest. He loves us. The judge was only concerned about himself. The Father cares for you. And the judge would only listen at certain times. Our Father wants to hear from you anytime. Pray continually. Pray always. He doesn't have office hours. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't eye roll when you come. Oh, here comes Chuck again. I've heard this one before. Ah, here comes my son. Come. Cast your anxieties on me. Cast your cares on me because I love you. Because I care for you. Because I'm here for you. Because the God of Jacob is for you. The God of Jacob is with you. The God of Jacob will never leave you or forsake you. Come. Anytime. If a God-hating, neighbor-hating, unjust judge will give justice to a poor widow, how much more will your heavenly Father do for you? The widow is us in this parable, isn't it? We are someone who is in a desperate situation. We're someone who is oppressed. We're someone who lives in a hostile world. We're someone who needs a defender, a redeemer, a helper. We're someone who needs an advocate <laughs> to come and save us. And as John says, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he comes. And so it's really encouraging us to pray. Philip Ryken said, we do not persist in prayer because God does not listen, but because he does. It's easy for Satan to convince us he's not listening, he doesn't hear. Because our soon and God's soon don't always line up. We do not persist in prayer because God does not listen, beloved, but because he does. And because he listens attentively. Because he listens justly. Because he listens lovingly. Because he listens mercifully. Mercifully. And so the parable also says something. He says that, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The context implies unrighteousness will be rampant on the earth prior to the return of the king. If you go and read Luke 17 this afternoon, which is the passage right before us, he's talking about Noah and he's talking about Lot. And he's talking about those times when unrighteousness was rampant. And you were wondering, like, how long is it going to take Noah to build this ark? And how long is this going to happen? And how long is God going to put up with Sodom and Gomorrah? And you note that there were a few righteous people calling out to the Lord during that time period. That's what this time period is going to be like. It's going to be full of wickedness, but it won't overcome you. It's going to be full of hatred for the Lord, but the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. If Satan could take the elect, he would, but he can't. They're forbidden from him. Because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have you always. 
So nevertheless, is he going to find faith on earth? Is he going to find this faith when he returns that's looking to him expectantly in prayer on the horizon? So as we wind down, beloved, besides the characters in the parable, who else is involved in the story? The one telling the parable is Jesus. The one in whose name we pray. The one who is on his way to Jerusalem at that very moment to save his people, his elect, his chosen ones from their adversary, from Satan, from sin, and from death, and to release them, that they might have life and that they might have abundantly. We do have an advocate with the Father. Who can bring any charge against God's elect, Paul asks in Romans. Listen to this incredible answer in the context of this prayer. When we're asked a question... Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice and speedily. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, beloved, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Have you lost heart? He's ready to hear. He's ready to answer. Scripture ends with this, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, it says. Dennis Johnson, in commenting on prayer, said, learning to pray does not offer us a less busy life, but it offers us a less busy heart. Haven't you had times of prayer where all the things going on in your life are weighing you down and burdensome, and you go and you pray? And it doesn't happen all the time, but you have those prayers where afterwards you just feel relieved. The circumstances haven't changed, but your heart is less burdened. Do not lose heart. That's the effect of what the the parable is trying to say. Because God is for you, because God is with you, because God has you now, he has you tomorrow, he will have you always, and there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you from that love. Luke wants to show us who Jesus is, that we might believe, that we might be saved, that we might have life, and that we might have peace. And here's one who's not like this unjust judge who doesn't really care about them, but here's one who cares so much that he gave his own life that you could have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not indifferent to our cries and not indifferent to our prayers. We thank you that you hear us and that you answer us. We thank you that you have answered the prayer of the saints throughout the years, 
by sending our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come, that he has been crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell, raised again, and now sits at your right hand. And we thank you that he has promised to return. And as we live between that tick of his first coming and the talk of his second coming, Father, we pray that you would increase our faith through your word, through your spirit, through your sacraments, that we might know, that we might believe, that we might have hope, that we might not lose heart. When so much around us seems to threaten and undo us, may we not lose heart because we are connected to and united to him who is risen and ruling and reigning forever and who will return even soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.